For me, it's it's looking back on what you've done, you know, what the challenges have been, how you've worked through it. Sometimes you're still dealing with the aftermath, but it's about how you improve and then you, you draw upon that experience um, in the future. Ensure that you don't make that error again. And if you do that, you know, again, you learn from it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Spring and summer are all about outdoor events, carnivals and concerts, with events on a large scale back on after a few years of upheaval. What does it take to deliver top shelf events for large amounts of people? Josh Pelham is the executive chef overseeing Flemington Racecourse for Crown Resorts. Josh, how are you? Yeah, great. Thanks, Huck. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You've uh, just had a pretty um, big spring carnival with the Melbourne Cup. Uh, How has it been? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, listen, it's been pretty full on. Um, Obviously, with the takeover and uh, Crown Resorts now um, running their catering uh, cross course at Flemington, um, it's created a a great opportunity for myself and Crown to really showcase uh, what we can do in the event space. Give us a sense of um, what you did over the Melbourne Cup and the extent of the catering that you did. Yeah, look, we were catering for up to 41,000 plated meals um, at its peak. Um, And that's not including all the retail offerings um, and also some of the grazing. So as you can imagine, it's a a huge beast um, and the the logistics and the coordination play a really important role um, to be able to deliver to that scale. Take us into a day um, and sort of what what it took and how many people and what what, what you were dishing up. Yeah, look, I'd like to say it's glamorous, um, as much as it might sound like it's glamorous, but it's a, it's certainly a lot of hard work. Um, and from the outside looking in, it it can seem like a, like a, a an easy job, but also um, you have to be very brave to do it. Uh, my day would start by uh, waking up at half two in the morning um, to drag myself out of bed, jump in the shower, and then uh, luckily I was. Uh, Fortunate enough to get a hotel room at the uh, the end of Epsom Road here, just by the front gates um, of the racecourse. So that was very uh, nice of my employer to do that for me to ensure that I was here on time, because um, otherwise I would be leaving the Mornington Peninsula even earlier. Wow. <laughs> um, and look, once I got on course, um, you really have to start going through the motions. Obviously, there's a few other people here, so we probably had about eight people on at that time. Um, and that delivery sort of start, that delivery window starts between sort of three and finishes at 7.30 in the morning where we go into lockdown and no one um, can get in. So you have to coordinate your deliveries accordingly. Um, and at this time, you know, we have two semi-trailers of, of um, sandwiches that, um, you know, we are helped, prepared um, off site um, that come in um, uh, just for the sheer volume. Um, we obviously couldn't do that on site ourselves for for a normal race day as opposed to on a normal race day where we do prepare a lot of those things ourselves. 41,000 plated meals in a day is extraordinary. Give us a sense of um, maybe sort of what you were serving. Um, look, the brief that I was given um, and and the food style that I have anyways is um, I'll work backwards from what's the dish that I want to do and then work out how we achieve that at scale. Um, now, obviously, sometimes there has to be some compromises um, along the way, but the style of food that we're doing is you know, modern, contemporary um, and unlike 
uh, food that's sort of been served here on scale before. Give us, um, tell us about some of the dishes that you created. Um, some of the dishes um, that were created, look, we offered a, a diverse wide ranging scale of offerings from fine dining um, th- through the plated uh, grazing on the table, um, cocktail, um, five course degustation, six course degustation. Um, so it was a, 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 a wide reaching uh, demographic. Um, but, you know, for me, I think some of the biggest successes was that real casual, casual style of dining where, you know, a dish comes to the table or four dishes comes to the table at once and you just sort of graze and share and and um, you know, spend that time with friends socialising, as opposed to um, sometimes the stuffiness of a of a degustation can be, um, you know, quite challenging for other people on the table. What was it like putting together such a huge event, um, given the last couple of years and the fact that these sort of things didn't happen in in many places? What was it like? Yeah, look, you know. Putting this um, event together, obviously Crown is a new partner with VRC and um, we didn't have that history of um, the knowledge, I guess the inside knowledge of how an, a major event like this works. Um, so that would that presented obviously its own challenges. Um, but I guess that we just took the approach of using our experience collectively amongst the senior leaders and then really um, going through the motions step by step about how we can methodically work through these challenges and how we will execute them. Take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Yeah, look, um, for me, food was always a way of expressing yourself creatively you know, your creativity, um, being able to do something that's very unique that other people struggle to do even when they're an adult. Um, so I guess in my younger years, that was really something that I enjoyed doing. I guess you could call it showing off a little bit, but, um, you know, I really enjoyed the journey of learning um, the camaraderie of the kitchen and the environment. I mean, I started my um, apprenticeship, uh, Mateo's, and then moved to Phoenix with Gary Megan, uh, George Columbaris and, and Raymond Capaldi. Um, and that's where I really sort of cut my, cut my teeth and made the commitment to the industry. And, and um, when, once you make that commitment and you're prepared to do what it takes to be able to get to the top, then that's when you really start to excel. Take us back into the kitchen with Gary and George and um, do you have any stories of what it was like working with them? Uh, none that I think that I would be able to share too widely. <laughs> on air <laughs> but look you know those guys really inspired me you know they they came from uh, michelin star restaurants in europe right they um had le restaurant you know three hat restaurant at the sofitel at the time um you know george went and opened reserve you know there was all there was a buzz there was a feel there was don't get me wrong it was bloody hard work you know we, at phoenix we'd set up and we'd do 150 for breakfast out of the same kitchen that we would then um do 150 in the cafe and set in the restaurant out of the one kitchen just sort of turning it over and that in itself creates challenges especially on a Sunday morning when everyone's a bit you know, hungover or you know, a bit tired at the end of the week right you spent a lot of time um, in various stints in the in the UK what was it like when you first went over there and um, how did you get your foot in the door um, look I, I guess the the desire came from you know you know developed whilst working at Phoenix about I want to commit to 
the industry. So how do I do that? How do I be the best that I can be, right? At the time, everyone was going to London, everyone was going overseas. Um, and so for me, that just seemed like naturally the right way to go. Um, I decided that I was going to go to London. Um, I didn't end up leaving. I had three leaving parties. So by the time I actually left Australia, um, I I landed in London with £500 in my pocket and anyone that's lived there would know that that doesn't go very far. Uh, luckily, I had um, luckily I had an uncle that lived in High Barnet at the time, uh, which is the very end of the Northern Line. So you're looking at about an hour and a half to two hours on the tube uh, to get to Mayfair. Um, and then I'd heard about a restaurant, a restaurant called The Square. Um, and The Square, for those that would be aware, you know, is an institution um, that has bred many great chefs like Scott Pickett, um, uh, Stuart McFay, uh, Brett Graham. You know, a real um, a real university for for young cooks that wanted to grow and 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 really commit to the industry. Um, and it was hard graft, uh, but rewarding at the same time. You know, you started at the bottom um, and you worked your way up. And I remember, you know, being in the back of the kitchen. You know, my job every day was make bread, make ice creams, and dice fruit. And I did that for the first seven months. Right, so you can imagine, you know, the frustration, and you know, there was one day where I was like, you know what, fuck this, I'm leaving, and I sort of grabbed my shit and I, I walked out, and then I, I reflected upon a time when I was younger and I went for my first job. Um, I was at a pizza shop, and um, I walked up to it, and I got really nervous. You know, fourteen nine months, never had a job before. Walked up, walked up, and I got really nervous, and I walked away and I said, "You know what? Fuck it, just give it a go. What's the worst thing that's going to happen?" And I walked in, and I got the job, and, I, and then I was there for a few months. And I sort of, I sort of reflected on that when I, um, when I had walked out of the square at that time, and I was like, "You know what? You've come this far. Now's the time to commit." And and you know, it was a real um, turning point, I think, for me. After that, I started flying. You know, getting onto the. Uh, the fish garnish and the meat garnish and then um, the kitchen was broken down into those types of sections, you know, cold starters, hot starters, fish, meat, and then you do the pass. So. Philip Howard has influenced so many um, chefs. What, do you have any stories of, of what it was like working with him and the influence? Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest thing that I picked up from Phil um, and Rob, Robert Weston, who was his head chef for 16 years, um, you know, is just be just be fucking genuine, right? Like just be genuine with people, and that's how you gain the respect. If you play games and you, um, you know, you mislead or you don't tell the truth or you know you, you don't be honest, um, then that's not the way to be successful. Just be genuine. Just be yourself. Um, yeah, I remember Turbot coming in at you know half past ten in the morning and Phil just filleting it directly on the bench because we needed it for lunch. No board, nothing, just straight on the bench, just filleting the fish for lunch, you know. And it's like this is a two Michelin star restaurant, you know, and it's, there's this great chef just filling the fish directly on the stainless steel bench. But that was classic Phil, you know, like just an absolute character um, and and someone who you know I've used as a mentor uh, for my entire life. After that, you sort of did a detour and um, spent a bit of time with on yachts and in some luxury resorts. What spawned that? Yeah, I think uh, just a desire to. Um, I think the penny really drops that I'd been in London for like five years, and I actually hadn't left London. I'd only been in London. I'd only worked. I'd only partied. I'd only had friends there. So time to get out, go out and explore whilst I have the opportunity, um, and then 
so the opportunity then came. Um, first step was getting to Chamonix, um, where I managed a, a high-profile group of um, individual chalets. Um, and, you know, that, that in itself had its challenges, you know, transferring guests, doing breakfast, lunch and dinner afternoon teas and all those types of uh, odd jobs but it was definitely um, rewarding um, in the fact that you met, met lots of people in different um, different scenarios um, but also you know you could let your hair down and have a, have a good time you know I remember getting locked up by the gendarmerie because I was uh, attempted to drive um, and I had guests the next day um, and I, I convinced the gendarme that I needed to go back to my chalet to, to get my asthma puffer so I could l- let my mate know that I was actually going to be locked up overnight and he had to look after the guests for breakfast in the morning. Yeah. I mean, they're just like, you know, they're the life sort of stories that you, that, you, that you develop, right? You ended up spending a bit of time at the French Laundry as well. How different was that compared to the experiences you'd had? <laughs> Yeah, look, um, to get to that point, though, it's really important to highlight that I I, I then moved from Chamonix down to the boats, um, to the soup yachts in the south of France, and um, one of the charter guests was Thomas Keller, right? And I just had his book, uh, uh, Under Pressure, and... um, you know, I, I sort of created the opportunity, I guess, where I, I invited him down to the to the galley. Um, he wanted to cook a couple of dishes and stuff, so I got every baby vegetable, every micro herb, every piece of foie gras, it, it, the best, the best produce, just so that he had a selection, because he didn't actually give me a list of what he wanted. Um, and you know, I gave him my apron and gave him my knives and set him up a board. You know, just went over the top. But that's what the sort of stuff that you would do at the square, right, for Phil or Rob or, you know, your sous chef, you know, you would do that. You would dice the butter. You would DC the lemon wedges to, for the lemon juice for the fish, you know, like, so we would do, I'd do all that. Um, and I had my CV in the front cover of his Under Pressure book, um, and I said, would you mind signing this? And so, as you can imagine, the you know, the, the, the CV fell out and he, he, we started chatting and he said, let me see what I can do. And, and um, you know, that's one thing led to another after 12 months. So I ended up landing in, in the French Laundry and, um, you know, what a great experience. Um, you know, I remember picking up uh, the French Laundry cookbook, the original one in culinary school, going, wow, this is the best food in the world you know and here i was sitting at the french laundry at five o'clock in the morning raising the american flag um setting up the kitchens for the chefs um and i guess that's really where i sort of um learned that you don't need to be an asshole to everyone to get what you want done like it's it's more challenging to work through the problems in a you know in a respectful way i guess as opposed to just yelling and screaming and calling people names. Um, you know, that's kind of the UK mentality. Whereas in America, for me, my experience at the French Laundry was very different. Um, so, you know, I guess after leaving the French Laundry, I, I had the opportunity to sort of weigh up which direction I want to go. And I found a sort of a happy medium, you know. You don't need to be like that all the time. But when you do kick off, people respond more than if you're kicking off all the time. What brought you back to Australia? Um, 
Look, I think a desire to, to, to go home for a bit. I hadn't been home for, for a number of years. And um, look, I, I found myself uh, working at the press club as a sous chef with Joe Grabak and, and George Columbaris again. Obviously, we had a good relationship. Um, and that sort of lasted sort of six to eight months. Um, and then, yeah, bit of a bit of a love story. But I met my now wife um, at the press club and uh, she was going overseas. I'd only been back for three months. And she was going to the UK. Um, so I had a, <laughs> I have a UK passport and I was like, sure, why not? So, um, you know, I went chasing her around the world and, um, it's paid off. You, you made your way back after that tour at some stage. Where did, where did you find your roots, um, and sort of start building your career back in Australia? Yeah, look, after um, being in the UK for a number of years, um, back working with Phil and opening, opening Kitchen W8, where we got uh, um, where we got a um, Michelin star in the first year, um, I landed back in Australia and uh, hooked up with uh, Scott Pickett. Um, we have had yeah, a friendship uh, before I left and obviously um, the blood that runs through Square trained chefs is very thick and uh you know we we stick together and we tend to look after each other um you know when everyone needs it um so you know i sort of called him and said how you going and coming back and we sort of teed something up and i ended up landing at estelle bar kitchen when the pink tiles are on the wall still um so that was the first incarnation of uh estelle and um that's where you know, Scott and I really um, developed our relationship, I guess, and I ended up being with Scotty for about four years, I think. Scott's a bit of a legend of um, Australian dining scene. Do you have any stories of what it's like working with him and the impact he had on you? Yeah, he runs at a million miles an hour, and if you don't keep up, you get left behind. (laughs) In a nutshell. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned the Mornington Peninsula uh, a little bit earlier, but you've um, had a connection there opening a a venue down there tell us a bit about that um yeah look you know after working with scott for so long um you know we we had spent time together opening restaurants um you know i was there when we went when we moved from uh well sorry same business but new uh restaurant launch from estelle bar kitchen to just estelle a bit of a makeover the pink tiles came off the wall um, and uh, there was no refurb to the kitchen, but the dining room got done and a bigger PDR upstairs. Um, and then St. Crispin obviously came on the scene, um, and then the um, second-hand clothing store next to Estelle became available, and this was um, you know, Scott's dream to open his own fine diner and really go for it. So we went through the motions of, um, you know, demoing the inside, taking it over, building the dream kitchen. Um, and for those that have been there would um, know what I'm talking about. You've got this beautiful island kitchen in the middle of the dining room. I actually think the kitchen's bigger than the dining room. Um, you know, with all the firepower you need to do, you know, thousand covers. Um, but, you know, Scott wanted to really push the envelope. And, um, yeah, we opened ESP. Um, and from that, you know, obviously other opportunities came where uh, we were doing the tennis and private events and um, his business and profile really started to grow Um, I sort of felt as though I needed a a break and I wanted to continue growing my skill set but restaurants I felt as though I had reached the limit at that point in time Um, and an opportunity presented itself um, to open uh, the RACV Cape Shank Resort now when I got told about 
RACB. Um, I didn't know that they had resorts or a leisure um, portfolio or um, multiple hotels around Australia. Um, so it was a pretty exciting journey to go on from a uh, sandstone building, conference building, clubhouse um, to a five-storey um, architecturally designed um, hotel with 200 rooms. Um, you know, in the first 12 months, it was a steep learning curve. Um, not I, you're only a chef who creates food, but you're also a counsellor, you're also an accountant, um, you're also a procurement officer, you're also a food safety officer. So, you know, the responsibilities grew. Um, and, you know, I think that... Um, are a true reflection of what effort was put in um, was shown through we received five-star hotel rating um, for our food and beverage operations and also a chef's hat and the good foods guide. What's the approach with um, something, a venue like that, a resort? Do you treat the food and restaurant differently to a standalone restaurant? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is um, you have to remember the demographic, right? So you're catering for... Um, people that are there uh, on their 85th wedding anniversary. You're catering for a family of four who are on a, a family vacation. Um, you know, you're catering for the couple that just got married or are on a first date. Right? So there's such a diverse range of people dining there that you can't um, sort of pigeonhole every menu to suit what you think is the best food. You have to understand the market. Um, make sure that you're catering to everybody, um, review the feedback, take it seriously, look for consistencies on how you can improve. Um, but at the same time, if you have a signature restaurant, that that's where you um, focus your energy on doing what, what you love um, and being creative. But, you know, circling back to what I'm currently doing at Flemington, you know, it trickles down from that restaurant into, you know, the conferencing and the event space where you're doing six, seven, you know, 1,200 people. Um, that food and that philosophy trickles down through that cuisine as well. It's not just locked into, uh, you know, steak, mash, green beans and sauce. How did you make the move into sort of the, the racing world and, and catering for such large numbers? Um, I did a... Uh, before I took the job at Cape Shank um, and after leaving Scott, I did a, a brief stint at um, Melbourne Racing Club and um, that was a casual role um, that I was doing, um, just as sort of a stopgap. And um, I really enjoyed the environment um, and the challenges and also I guess there's a little bit of work-life balance there as well. Um, you know, you still do large-scale events and catering um, and race days, but it's not like a hotel 24-7 um, breakfast, lunch and dinner and overnight room service that you're worrying about and, you know, the breakfast chef is sick and then you have to go in and do a triple shift. Um, there's different pressures and different considerations. Tell us about um, first starting that and the sort of events that you, you know, were the challenges in sort of when you first sort of got your foot in the door with the racing? COVID. <laughs> 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 I literally started, uh, when was it, 21? Yeah, 21. Um, so, you know, we were in the midst of 
second COVID lockdowns. Um, we'd done a couple of race days, smaller race days, but then we got locked down again. Um, what that looks like, um, you know, at the racetrack, we didn't have a huge amount of full-timers, so I guess there wasn't that pressure of dealing with the HR perspective too much, but we had to, you know, like everyone pivot into boxes, putting food in boxes and how can we have an offering for our members um, and also, you know, the racing audience that still want to have that special experience because we were fortunate enough to continue racing through the lockdowns. Throughout your career, you've um, won so many different awards and had so many different acknowledgements. Well, what sort of impact has have they had on sort of the trajectory of your career? Yeah, Huck, look, for me, I think that it's super important that if once you can, once you make that decision to commit um, to the industry, right, that you have to be prepared to put yourself out there and you have to be prepared to take the criticism, right, because it's not always all positive. You know, you don't always win the competition the first time that you do it, you know, but it's you give it another crack next year and you improve, right? And I think that, you know, that's part of being a successful chef and you know putting yourself on tv you're putting yourself out there to be criticized by the public right no matter who you are um and some people like it and some people don't and it's how you deal with those things and i think that um that's really character building and it's really important tell me a little bit about your food i know you know you spoke of the forty-one thousand plated meals in a day at the melbourne cup and things like that but what's what's your approach to cookery and and you know, where does your food lie? Look, I, I always remember what Phil sort of taught me and I was like, make sure it just tastes fucking delicious. Whatever's on the plate, make sure it's nice, right? And then you make it pretty, right? And then you strip it back and then you, you look at how you can present it in a, you know, in a, in a, in a modern or contemporary way. Um, I think that I like to use, you know, native influences where we can um, and, you know, sort of a contemporary sort of French style, I guess, Um but for me, it's really about just trying to pair it back when it's on a plate. And there's no need to do sort of 13, 14 touches these days. Is, is there a dish that stands out for you that you created for, for this year's event that you could sort of break down and tell us about? Um, this year's event, oh, look, it's very different <laughs> in this world about doing a dish that's super, super creative. Um, I mean, I've always had a, a steak tartare on, on the menu um, with beautiful sort of um, charcoal roasted and pickled um, radicchio. Uh, with with a uh, cashew cream, uh, ribberries and smoked beetroots. It's always a nice little entree that I like to roll out um, whenever I get the opportunity. Given the huge success um, this year of the catering that you did, um, did what, what are your plans for next year? Do you see some opportunities? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely opportunity to improve. <laughs> always. <laughs> Um, and look, I'm, I'm um, really enjoying the challenges of day-to-day of running this scale business. I don't think that there's um, many other businesses that could offer, um, you know, these type of challenges. Uh, being obviously internationally known um, is a real sort of um, driver for me to keep pushing and keep doing what I do um, and just creating a positive working environment and, and a positive culture with the team. Well, you're doing amazing things down there. What, what, what do you love about what you do? Um, look, for me, it's it's looking back on what you've done, you know, what the challenges have been, how you've worked through it. Sometimes you're still dealing with the aftermath, but it's about how you improve and then you, you draw upon that experience 
um, in the future to really um, ensure that you don't make that error again and if you do that you know again you learn from it but uh, obviously you don't want to make that same mistake too many times well uh, Josh congratulations on what you're building there and I look forward to seeing what you do in the coming year Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon absolutely thanks mate this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.